0: Welcome to Everything Just Changed. I'm Bryce Hales, and I'm here with my friend Brad Edwards. And we are here to help you navigate faithfulness to Jesus in a post Christian and post pandemic world. And we have just begun a new series here. This is season three of our podcast where we are asking the question how do we receive our identity from God rather than achieving it ourselves? So much of the polarization and the anxiety that we've all seen and experienced, and that has been heightened in the last year, it comes from individualism. This idea that I should pursue any course in life that makes me happy and is an attempt to achieve rather than receive an identity. So what does it actually look like in practice to receive our identities? That's what we're trying to get at over the course of our next several episodes.
1: All right. So as we have set up for this season, we are really focusing and, and, and hyper focusing even on this question of how in the world do we even receive an identity in the first place, especially when we are swimming in the waters and surrounded by a culture that says that you are the self determination source of your identity. You achieve. Your own identity, and that is that is our operating assumption, even if we are Christian. And so, the way we're going to start this off, uh, especially as we get into the 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 question of how did we get here, how did that become the water that we are swimming in, Uh, Bryce? Okay, when we actually say as part of this podcast and set this up that we are helping you to live faithfully to Jesus in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world, what? What do we actually mean by post-Christian? Because Bryce was, you were just telling me, Bryce, that uh, that you've actually gotten some pushback on the use of this term, which honestly, that sounds really weird, like uh, of all the things for us to push back on like how we're talking about this. I didn't realize, I guess, that that was in question.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I got to admit, I was surprised. I, I've gotten a, a couple of uh, questions about this from a few different people in different contexts. Um, some people saying, okay, what do you mean by post-Christian? When, when, when did we become post-Christian? Um, and here's what I realized when, like I said, when this first came to me, I was kind of surprised. Um, and then I understood what was happening. So when we say that we're living in a post-Christian culture, um, what we're not saying is that we have moved beyond Christianity or that everybody has rejected Christianity or that like the new atheists have won and there are no more Christians today or that like the Christian people who are Christians today are somehow like relics of a previous era
1: or something like that. So, um, Yeah, it's not to say that Christianity itself is no longer helpful, useful, or valued.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. And so I think some people have taken the term post-Christian almost as like a a derogatory term or pejorative term. And and so... Yeah, I think it's super helpful to clarify that we're using the term post-Christian in a in a descriptive, not in a prescriptive way. We're not saying it's a good thing that we're in a post-Christian uh, culture. We're just describing it as what it is. And so to really understand this, um, I, we got to go to a, um, a sociologist named Philip Reef, who was, um, well, he died in like 2006. Super influential, but like many academics, um, his books are incredibly difficult to read. And so um, nobody has read them, and I I wouldn't suggest that you do. But he has this framework where he talks about first cultures, second cultures, and third cultures. And he's basically describing the progression of – Uh, uh, especially Western culture over the last 2,000 years. And so he he says a first culture is essentially a pagan culture. So you think of like the Greco-Roman world, the Pantheon, or like the Visigoths coming down from Germany. Um, And so a a first culture is a place that um, believes in the spiritual. There are many gods, there are many spiritual forces that are like lurking behind physical objects. And so it carries with it the idea of karma and of fate and sees the world as somewhat chaotic and unpredictable. Okay, that's kind of the the first culture world.
1: Is it is it fair to characterize what you're describing as like, you know, a, a kind of a very human-centered uh, way of seeing uh, metaphysics, like in the sense that when I when you mentioned the like the Greek pantheon and everything I'm thinking of like these are gods that are made in our image like they are they Mm -hmm. are drama kings and queens they are they represent various specific needs like yeah it's kind of
0: human human beings blown up like to uh, to superhero hero status in some ways but I mean this would also include more like and a more animistic um uh kind of view of the world as well and you know like I said kind of this idea that like in the in in natural objects and physical objects, there is spiritual potential. Mm. Um, so it it doesn't necessarily uh, um, you know it, it's pagan in in all of its forms.
1: Yeah, okay? our immediate direct experience is the starting point for the transcended, not where the yes. transcended is going to. Yes,
0: yeah. And so then um, Reef talks about moving, the world really moves from a first culture to a second culture. And second cultures are dominated by monotheistic religion. And so in the Western Hemisphere, from like the 4th century through the Middle Ages, up until at least the Enlightenment, it was shaped by Christianity. And it's not that, and I think this is so important, um, it's not that every single person who was alive during that time, period was a Christian, but the culture was largely shaped by the Christian view of the world. Hmm. Uh, So there's the idea that there is one God who is sovereign over nature, uh, and it leads eventually to a more sort of settled and stable understanding of an interaction uh, with the world.
1: Hmm. Because you have shared assumptions, right? Right. Okay.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you have like a a transcendent um, moral framework and point of reference that whether or not you agree uh, that Jesus rose from the dead, everybody sort of agrees in the, you know, where we talk about the the Judeo-Christian values, right? And the Protestant work ethic, even, you know, everybody kind of has these shared assumptions about the way the world operates, um, and 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 the disagreements about religion are disagreements about, is this, is like the Bible actually true or is it not true? But it's still the point of reference for mm. everybody in the way that they approach life in that culture, mm. okay? So then we move into the third culture. And the way that Reef sees it, a third culture is a reaction to a second culture, and it's defined over against the second culture. So um, Reef wrote in one of his books, he said, the institutions which were defenders of the second world have not offered the kind of defense or support that would have been more powerful than therapeutic forces. So Christianity becomes therapeutically, Jesus is good for you. So there's this this idea that the third culture is post-second culture. In a way, uh, Reef actually um, calls it an anti-culture. It's almost inherently deconstructive. So in the West, the second culture was largely defined and shaped by Christianity. So the third culture is then post-Christian, a post-second culture, third culture, is post-Christian. And so again, it's not that every single person living in the third culture has has rejected Christianity or that nobody's a Christian anymore, but the but the culture is reactionary to and it's largely mm. derivative of Christianity. So big picture, this is a super helpful framework. First culture, second culture, third culture is, is um, I think most uh, historians and sociologists would agree that it's a somewhat simplistic way of looking at human history. And yet it's out, it's, it's incredibly valuable. Um, you know, Mark Sayers and John Mark Comer uh, have, have talked a ton about this reality in this cultural moment and, and kind of talked about it at a, um, At the level of like cultural analysis, just this reality that we're living in this post-Christian world and what that means—that that that it's derivative of the second culture. So, I mean, even how we got here and got into this podcasting thing in the whole uh, in the first place was when we heard uh, Mark Sayers say that secularism wants the kingdom without the king. And we kind of started going, oh, but what's what's on the other side of that, right? And there, there is also this reality where certain forms of evangelicalism are looking for the, the, the king, but, you know, maybe reluctant to live and do his kingdom way of living. Okay, so at a cultural level, super helpful um, to understand what we, what it means to live in this world where it feels like everything is like kind of falling apart, right? It's really, really helpful, though, when we come to the question of identity, because in order to understand the way that individual identity has come to dominate our cultural moment, we have to understand how we actually got here. And Reef, I think, helps us see that the way that we human beings today think about identity and we do it in a way that it feels intuitive to us. Um, it feels like common sense to us. It isn't actually the way that most human beings historically or even globally right now think about how they answer the
1: question, who am I? Hmm. Okay? Um, can you give it maybe just – can you give an example of that? Like what what would be uh... – kind of a narrative pre-modern versus modern in terms of like, how, how does that go?
0: Yeah. So the, so the way that we, the way that modern people today answer the question, who am I? And the way that we think about that is not the way that most people in history or even alive today who live in like the global South or uh, in the Eastern hemisphere tend to think about questions of identity. Okay. So what do we mean when we're talking about identity, when we're talking about identity, we're talking about our sense of self And our sense of worth. Uh, so my sense of what is good and what does it mean to be a good person, but also how I answer the question of like, how are you doing with that? Right? So there's my, my ideals, my goals, my sense of what it means to be a good person. But then there's like the evaluative, evaluative question of, am I living up to my ideals or not? Um, That's what we're talking about when we're, when we're talking about what is an identity or, um, another way Tim Keller, uh, puts it like this. What is your core trust? Um, he, he says, you know, there's a lot of different roles in your life. You have your job, you have your, um, maybe your marriage, you have your relationships, maybe your parent, your hobbies, your friends that you interact with. And in each of these different roles, you function in slightly different ways, but who's the really, um, the core you that is present in each of those roles, that's, your identity—that's yeah. who you really are. So your identity is what gives you significance and security in life. Okay, now here's the thing I think is super interesting. Um, Reef says that there's a progression of how human beings through history have answered the question of security and significance, and he talks about four different ways. And he 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 uses the kind of typological man. So it's political man, religious man, economic man and then psychological man. Okay. And these are his words, you know, not mine. So, you know, is this not gender inclusive, uh, language, uh, but don't shoot the messenger here. Okay. <laughs> okay. So political man, political man is this idea that comes from like Plato and Aristotle political man is, is, um, the, the the person who finds his identity in the activities that he engages in the public life of the city. Hmm. And so interestingly, I think this is what's happening in Acts 17 when Paul goes to the Areopagus and there's this group of men that gather there every day to discuss the latest ideas. That's that's what they're doing right there, okay? So for the political man, he finds his, like, his truest self when he is interacting in public life. Um, in this world, moral codes are based in myth, and fate is this kind of controlling idea. And so the, these, like, stories of, um, you know, um, like epics and fables are the way that culture is passed down and identity is shaped as we, uh, as culture tells these stories about heroes who sacrifice themselves for the good of their community. Mm. Okay. So roughly analogous with the first culture, pagan world. Okay. Then, um, the second kind of type of person that Reef talks about is, is a religious man. And so especially in the Middle Ages, this is someone who finds his sense of self in his involvement in religious activities. And so whether that's, you know, going to mass or celebrating feasts or going on pilgrimages, you know, obviously people have, they have jobs, they have families, they have lives. But their truest self, their identity is found in relation to their religious activity. Okay, Um, then that begins to move kind of post-enlightenment to economic man. And economic man finds uh, a sense of worth and identity in economic activities, so trade and production and making money. And I think what's happening here is that economic man kind of comes into prominence in the later part of the kind of Christendom uh, world, that second culture that's that's shaped by Christianity. Uh, It's taking place during the end of that stage. And identity is still being shaped um, kind of externally with reference to external factors. But it's beginning to open the door for what comes next because the question of value starts to be attached to everything. Hmm. And when when we start thinking about our identity in terms of our value, like in the marketplace or in society, what's happening is there's a subtle shift that's starting to take place. And we're beginning to think not just about who we are in relation to forces external to ourselves but we're we're beginning to think about our value in relation to those
1: things is is it is it fair to say like is what you're talking about with this, especially that economic man piece that prior to that point value is either assumed or we at least didn't have like a framework for comparing like this is more or less valuable like is that kind of part of what you're saying what about that was new? Was it just the priority, or was that like not even on the radar or part of our the process of self understanding before that?
0: Yeah, so it, I, it's just it's just more of a um, you know this is happening during the time of the industrial revolution, and so um, you know the, the labor force begins to move into cities and out of. Uh, more agricultural kind of uh, settings, and so I think um, the 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 sense that uh, who I am, that my truest self—I mean, all of this is is about like where do I find my truest sense of self? And mm. so it's not that like in this period people stop going to church or they stop interacting in a political arena. It's 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 more that the the value that they bring to, um, or that they find in their economic activity begins to to shape how they think about their interaction with the world. Gotcha. Does that make that sense? Makes sense. Yeah. I cool. Yeah. No worries. So then, so then comes a totally new type of person, and really, this is Philip Reeve's whole program is about explaining this, and it's it's like his the antihero of his entire academic life, and he calls this uh, person Psychological Man, and Psychological Man doesn't find his identity the way uh, in the way that he interacts with the world. The first three types, economic. Religious, political man are all about how I interact with others and when I interact with the world. But psychological man is all about the inward quest for personal psychological happiness. And so this is fundamentally different and really I think this is where we draw a line between uh, traditional and modern identities because it's, it, it's not that modern people aren't political or religious or motivated by money uh, and it's not that previous ages were uh, like didn't ever think of the concept of happiness right? But but the point is that in third culture, psychological categories and an inward focus become the mark of what it means to be a modern person. My truest self is, is what I find when I look inside myself, you know, I have to discover who I really am. Okay, so there's a... Um, There's a fantastic example of the way the shift has gone, um, in, um, Carl Truman's book. And we're going to be talking with Carl Truman in a couple of weeks. Um, it's in a footnote, but he talks about, think about the way that people dance, Okay, think about the way that people dance. In in traditional societies, there are formal dance steps that you have to learn in order to dance. And when you dance, you go out onto the dance floor with your partner, but you're part of a group. And so, uh, kind of the meaning or pleasure that comes from dancing comes from being an individual that's related to a larger whole, right? Now think about how do we think about dancing today? You think about like the modern nightclub dancing. It, it's basically you doing your own thing completely isolated from from other people, right? Pretty good picture of that shift from the like traditional to the modern identity.
1: That's super helpful for me in particular because I spend like a lot of time at nightclubs. And yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm yeah, so yeah. familiar, especially with the second mode of dancing <laughs> that you described there. So totally, that's
0: great. Totally. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, another way you think about this shift is to think about the way that we think about job satisfaction. Okay so it wasn't that long ago probably everyone listening to us your grandparents would have thought about like do you like your job and the way they would have answered that would have been well yeah like i go to work and i do work that's meaningful and it allows me to provide for my family hmm. okay and so the the value that previous um cultures and ways of conceiving of identity got from work was Does this allow me to contribute to, you know, caring for my family? Now, how do we think about job satisfaction? We think about like, am I doing something that makes me feel good about my interaction with the world? Okay, so it's moved from this external point of reference to an internal Point of reference
1: how overlapping are yeah. these these each of these stages are these cons, uh, concurrent in in various points because I'm, I'm 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 trying to kind of take these categories or filters and apply them to different conversations or experiences that i've had and it strikes me how much um yeah. right the the Political, man, if you keep this to a lowercase p, like, you know, Greek word polis, meaning city, and not like yeah. GOP versus DNC like we have today, even that seems to be, like, there are places where that is a value, um, there's or, or even primary as an identity. And this, this kind of seems to describe some of the, like, especially some of the tribes within evangelicalism, like, you see mm. kind of different pieces of these become, uh, or be uh at the forefront instead of the background of aspects of identity. Yeah, so or am I taking this to a place I'm, that he's not intending necessarily to describe?
0: Well, I mean, I think that we have to we have to like understand that like these are he's painting with a very broad brush. Sure. I mean, he's he's categorizing, you know, 2000 plus years of the way that human beings have understood what it means to be a self. Mm-hmm. in four categories. So there's a lot of overlap. Sure. And I mean one of the things that's interesting I, I heard Mark Sayer say that people were describing Australia as a post-Christian nation in the 1800s. <laughs> so um and certainly when 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 Philip Reef and and others are writing from an academic perspective, you know often like the cutting edge of academic thought is uh, it it takes maybe a generation or two until that is actually describing the experience of the average people sure. right mm-hmm. um I think the other part that we're gonna we're gonna eventually talk about a little bit more is that for the sake of like discussing this and trying to trying to understand how we do spiritual formation in the church today it's helpful to delineate these very you know, starkly, but Mm. we all have various levels of, you know, uh, different things influencing our identity. Like there's no, there's no pure, I mean, we're eventually going to get to talking about a, what does a gospel identity look like? But none of us has a pure gospel identity, right? And so Mm. it's always intermingled with, other things going on because we can't help but live in the culture that we live in. but i think maybe even the better answer to your question about you know to what extent are these um ways of conceiving of identity overlapping with one another it, again understand it, it's not that nobody is engaged in politics today obviously that what he's describing is not um, the activities that people are engaged in. He's talking about where do I get my sense of value and security. So Engaging in politics today is happening at the same rate it always has I guess. It's it's the reason why are we engaging in politics? Why are people engaging in politics? Because you know and, and so today psychological man is engaging in politics because I looked inside my heart and discovered that I wanted to change the world and the political arena is the area in which that seems most doable to me. You know, compare that with I mean was it JFK Um, who, you know, the famous JFK quote, uh, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. He's he's talking about a form of, of political engagement that is for the sake of you know the the civic good the good of the country over my individual and personal desires uh and so politics it's not that we're less engaged in politics today it's that we're engaged in them because it's an expression of it, it, it's it's an attempt to seek after our own happiness and personal well-being and that is what's driving our
1: engagement with others right yeah, i mean that's that's really good I also, oh, I'm kind of curious just if it strikes me, and again, tell me if this is over-applying or, or seeing things there that, that are not, but it strikes me that each of these different kind of phases or different man uh, archetypes that as society, as we would consider progress, as society pr- progresses, each of these are possible and available to people as... Overall level levels of comfort, wealth, affluence, uh, convenience, and time availability, uh, bandwidth—all as as those increase you kind of like have the luxury of contemplating this, like right? So for the political man, you, you have yeah. to talk. You have to be focused on the, what is the common good or else you don't survive and your community doesn't right. survive. But once that's right. not an existential crisis, you can think about transcendent things, which is probably the next place. But And then, you know, right. with more wealth comes the freedom to look inward. I mean, that, that just makes kind of some intuitive sense, even without the yeah. academic framework where it's coming from. Totally,
0: totally, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so if we kind of zoom out and look at this, uh, you know, there's, he's got these four types, but really, I, I think it's helpful to distinguish kind of two fundamentally different ways about thinking about identity. And so in in the traditional identity, and uh, in, in traditional cultures, I get my sense of self by looking outward, by looking to either my parents, my family, my community, uh, maybe it's my religion. Um, I think it, it's, it's like the guild, right? It's, it's um, others that you work with. And so the culture or the community tells me what it means to live a good life. And then I sacrifice my desires in order to live up to the community's ideals And then I get my validation because if I'm living up to those ideals, the community honors me. And so this is where we talk about like an honor-shame culture, right? If I'm living up to my ideals, the community honors me. If I am not living up to, or sorry, not my ideals. If I'm living up to the community's ideals, then the community honors me. If I am not living up to those ideals, then uh, then the community shames me. And so traditional identities are external. And we see this both again, like in the ancient world, but non-Western societies today um, function in much this way, right? Then we have, you know, people have called it the modern identity, but I think I think we want to call this the individualistic identity, okay? Um, because this is completely it's like the inverse of how the traditional identity works so and what reef makes clear when he talks about psychological man individualistic identities are not about looking outward they're about looking inward and so modern people today discover we discover who we are by looking into our hearts by discovering who i really am i i used to um as you know i was a college pastor for a long time and it you know this idea of like students who graduate from college and then we're going to go travel through thailand why because i have to discover who i really am so that's that's this idea of um You know, I have to get out into the world, but I have to look inside myself in order to to discover what makes me happy. If you look inside yourself, you discover what makes you happy, what you really want, and then you go out and you broadcast that to the world and everybody has to affirm you. You know, that, that, that's like, I think that last part is maybe the latest addition, but I look inside myself, I discover who I am, I broadcast that to the world, and then I demand that everybody affirms me. And this is why it's so hard to talk about things that we disagree over now, because if you disagree with me, you're not just disagreeing about an idea, you're not affirming who I truly am. And so you're oppressing me.
1: Man, uh, okay? that, that makes a ton of sense. And, um, you know, we haven't, we have, by the time you're listening to this, we probably have not released this episode, um, but you can look forward to it now because that gets at the heart of some of the hubbub that has recently gone viral on Twitter around this, this term and approach of deconstruction, um, which is fascinating because it's almost like this, you know, psychological man approach to uh, shedding the traditional identities that you feel like you have been forced to adopt or to wear or to imbibe, and it you know there are some aspects of this that we can affirm and say like you know what maybe you know white supremacist uh, assumptions in culture or racism systemic racism like yeah that might be a bad thing but can we also not throw uh, Jesus or the baby out with the bathwater right and <laughs> and and let's also just be aware that are even the the even the the act of deconstruction is itself a hyper individualist way of redefining yourself that is. Mm-hmm. Is is not decolonizing your faith. It's actually leveraging the Western colonized assumptions of individualism and weaponizing it against yourself. <laughs> like it's it's actually hmm. doubling down on the some of the same approaches that Bryce you're talking about and and describing with with this um, this perspective. So that makes yeah. a lot of sense. And it's, it strikes me how much that is, this is introducing some like real cognitive dissonance for people, even as you know, in this roundtable, um, conversation episode that we're going to release, you know, we're all trying to wrestle with like, okay, how do we even have conversations with people who are coming from that perspective? Like, how do we even have meaningful conversations without Mm -hmm. just stepping all over everybody, each other's, um, assumptions? Because, like, I feel like it has to be important. Otherwise we we are not able to live in a functioning society with, with, yeah. with such fundamental assumption differences. Yeah. Well,
0: and I think that maybe just to even kind of piggyback on that, I, I think it's important at this point to say, because when, when we, when you talk about the modern identity, the individualistic identity, it's, it's easy to think of that as the progressive identity, mm. but what you just said about, about the difficulty of talking with people, Hmm. this is not simply something that's playing out on the progressive side of the spectrum too. It's happening on the conservative side of the spectrum. And if you disagree with my conservative um, beliefs, then I have a hard time talking to you too. And Hmm. I I think that's, you know, I think maybe that's one of the fundamental insights that, that we're hopefully trying to, Highlight in this uh, in in our podcast, right, is that this is happening in the church too, and often what what's going on is actually people have an an individualistic identity, but because it leans conservative or it leans Christian or you affirm Christian beliefs, somehow you think, well, I don't have an individualistic identity, but no, that that's, that's sort of what it is at core. It's about, um, looking inside myself and sort of uh, discovering what feels Mm. good and true about the world and then broadcasting that to others and then demanding that others agree with me. Mm. Yeah. Man. So, I mean, I was thinking about an example, um, uh, of this I, when I was, um, before I went to seminary, I worked for Washington Mutual and um, the bank when it existed. Um, <laughs> and 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 honestly, we probably sold some uh, loans that helped ruin the economy. Um, Good but <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I worked in this office. Yeah, I worked. I worked in this office that was great with a bunch of people that I liked, but most of them were not Christians. And when I left, um, I, I quit my job and I left to go to seminary, to study, to become a pastor, I was fascinated by the way that the office treated me because everybody was so affirming and they were they were talking about how brave I was um, and they were kind of affirming this decision to go and do what I really, really wanted to do. And I just thought it was such an interesting um, moment because if we had had a conversation about you know, some of my beliefs as a Christian, they would have been wanting to just tear them apart. Right. Hmm. You know, my, my, um, and yet when I'm making this decision and the way that they were looking at it was, Oh, Bryce is following his heart. You know, he's making this brave decision to leave a stable job with a good income. And he's gonna go live the poor, starving student lifestyle to become, you know, a person who's gonna do good in the world. And it, it was just such an interesting kind of moment to to experience personally, knowing that a lot of them disagreed with what I was doing. And yet they were they were overwhelmingly affirming this this step that I was taking.
1: Man, that is dude, I I have a story an example is that is like the mirror image of that in that when we were looking for a current house and trying to move into the context that we have since planted a church we our real estate agent who is now like a dear friend of ours she and her whole family um you know she when she asked why we were you know wanting to move to to Lafayette and you know what was the you know why are you why are you coming here I, I was like with great fear and trembling was like yeah well we're kind of crazy and want to, you know, start a church from scratch, uh, you know, in Boulder County of all places. And her reaction was so shocking to me because she was like, good for you. That is amazing. Like you're following your dream. And I was like, you know, it it, it sparked some interesting conversations with Hannah and I, because I was like, you know, I don't know that this is my dream. You know, like my dream, if I'm I'm honest, is going to, you know, uh, you know, be a lot more, uh, you know, fanfare and, uh, Probably I, I often describe
0: the various calls and ministry that I've taken as things Jesus makes me do, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not necessarily following my dream yeah. all the time. Yeah.
1: Things Jesus makes but me this do. This is the next thing God Jesus is going to make me. me do. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah.
0: Okay. So that's, that's the modern world. And I mean, that. the, I mean, we're both saying that, okay, we've both had these experiences where somebody who fundamentally disagrees with us on questions of, of faith and doctrine and, and and Christianity is is kind of bending over backwards to affirm these brave decisions because that's the way the, the individualistic identity works. It's look inside yourself, you know follow your heart, declare to the world who you are, and demand that everybody hmm. affirms you. Okay. So you kind of said this, but I think it's important to say I, like I want I want to kind of talk about some problems, but it is important to say that this is not all horrible. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's good to have a sense of self and, uh, it, you know, it's good to have a sense of what you were created to do. And maybe that's not exactly carrying on the family business, um, or just, you know, continuing in this line of work, this way of life, because that's what good people do. And you don't really have a say in the matter. Like there is a sense of freedom, that the individual identity brings because in the best possible sense of the word freedom, freedom is to, is the freedom to become who God created you to be. So lest anybody, we're not going to spend a ton of time kind of critiquing the traditional worldview um, because that's not the culture that we live in, right? But okay, there's some real problems with the individualistic identity. And I'm going to just say, I'm going to give you three of them. And um, I, this, is, this is really, I'm relying on Tim Keller and a, a conference that he did called Gospel Identity. That's amazing. And um, it, by the way, I'm going to put links to everything I'm referencing in the show notes if, if anybody wants to follow up on that. But three huge problems with the individualistic identity. Okay. The first is that it's incredibly fragile. Uh, one of the things that many people are noticing this is not just Christians but many people are noticing today is that people in our world today are racked with anxiety and self doubt and I think that this is the reason because if I have to look inside myself and decide what makes me happy and then i 'm the only one who gets to decide whether or not i 'm actually living up to my own goals, that sounds on this very surface sounds like freedom, but it's incredibly fragile Um, for a couple of reasons. One is because my feelings and my desires are always changing. And so how do I handle basing my identity on my own, my own, you know, desires, my own emotions that are always shifting?
1: If, if it's so dependent on that internal reality, like what if you are, what if you have some mental health complications or challenges Like what if you're struggling with depression and it's like biochemical, Mm. then that basically burdens you with the requirement that you don't have a dignity, value and worth if you do not feel good about yourself. Like that's that seems to be incredibly fragile and and very dependent on like Mm. external outside circumstances. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, totally. So it, it's it's incredibly fragile for that reason, but it, it's also incredibly fragile because we can never truly validate ourselves individually. Um, human beings, everybody knows, are inc- are inherently social beings, and so. I mean, there's a reason why when I'm reading a book, if I read a great line, I want to share it with my wife. If I watch a great movie, I want to tell a friend about it, right? Because we we seek validation in the ways that we interact with everybody else. And so you just... I mean, you can say everybody else thinks I'm terrible, but it doesn't bother me because I feel good about myself. But that is a very, very difficult way to live for any length of time, right? I think that actually we would we would call the person who lives like that a sociopath, right? Yeah. Um, you can't you can't say that you don't care what anybody else thinks about you and be like a happy person for any length of time. Yeah. Um, the other reason it's really fragile, and and a lot of people have you know, secular, um, you know, authors and and, and people have pointed this out too, is that um, (laughs) this makes modern people a dream for marketers because now, um, so Tim Keller said this, mm. that like, if you go back to the seventies, toothpaste ads are based on like this toothpaste will fight cavities and will give you healthier teeth. So it's useful, right? But now you don't, you don't sell a product based on how useful it is. You, you sell a product based on how it makes you feel. Like if you use this toothpaste, it'll make you a, uh, you know, a sexy person, right? So this is the, yeah. and so marketing, um, Marketers know that because we are fragile people, that if they can get us to tie our sense of worth to their product, that we will that we will buy that product. Okay, so it's incredibly it's incredibly um, fragile. Yeah. Second reason the modern identity is a problem is because it's crushing, and this is I think so like counterintuitive. But if traditional identity is about fitting in, individual identity is about standing out, and um, and if it's about standing out, nobody gets to tell you who you are and you have to decide for yourself. So um, individual identity requires that you stand out and be different than everybody else. So I, I was thinking about this moment. I know we've talked about Ted Lasso. Um, and there's this moment at the end of Ted Lasso that, gosh, this will actually ruin it if you haven't finished this. So skip ahead like 30 seconds if you haven't. But like, there's this moment where in the, in the final uh, episode – You remember when Jamie Tart, uh, for the first time ever, he passes Mm. and, um, is it man, Manchester United scores the winning goal and AFC Richmond loses the game. And after the game, you see this scene where, where Ted Lasso is going to go and congratulate Jamie and Jamie's father is berating him. And he's saying, I didn't come all the way down here to watch you pass the ball. You could have been great. You know, you Mm. could have scored that goal. You could have been the hero. Okay. This is ironically why this idea that you can be whatever you want to be. It sounds like freedom. It's absolutely crushing. Um, Mm. The modern identity says you figure out who you are and you are totally unique and you get to decide what makes you different than everybody else. But the first 7 billion options have already been taken. So good luck.
1: Before you move on to the next one, I I, I feel like if you are playing professional soccer, especially in a country that actually cares about that, you know, the the, we're talking about uh, comparison here, right? Like, and I know that there's a comparison on a far more ordinary level. But what I mean by that is like, if you've if you've reached the level of, of soccer player, uh, on, on a pro team from where you and I are sitting, we would say like, <laughs> I think you've probably done it, whether you scored that last right. goal or not. Like, so what, Right? how does that work out in ways that are crushing in a, in a more kind of ordinary sense.
0: Well, it, it, I mean, I think what, what you're getting at there sort of is the answer because it, it, it's sort of this idea that the bar is continually being raised on you, mm-hmm. right? It's crushing because, um, you know, I met my sales goals last quarter. And mm. so that's, imi- that's initially amazing, but it means that I've got to do even better next quarter.
1: Mm. Right. Man. Man, I, I'll tell you what, I, Gosh, this is just how much this is just in the air we breathe, right? Uh, yeah. like even just to be super real, as a church planter, uh, we're, we're like a year out from the first Sunday we were not able to meet in person, like as yeah. of the recording of this podcast. And since then, um, <laughs> we're we're about 60% of the size we were a year ago as a church. And right. there's a sense that I carry and have realized how much I am carrying a sense of like, like that is a, an indictment on my dignity, value and worth. And I am, mm. I am, I am resisting the te- the temptation. No, I'm not resisting because I'm telling you about it. What, this is ridiculous. <laughs> right. Uh, but like, yeah, we did send a church planter to plant 20 minutes north of us. And that's part of the reason why we lost some of our people. So like, I am justified. Oh, <laughs> right, right,
0: right. The fact that the church got smaller is not is not on
1: me. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, either right, yeah. Well, it's both. It's not my fault. And even if it isn't, I still have this kind of like existential, like, mm. oh my gosh, maybe we, maybe everything that I, we had, that, that God had done in, in the table up to this point, was that all a lie? The fact that I'm questioning that, like, is, is kind of proof of what you're talking about, about how much it it is, it is a reflection of deeper things, bigger things than it, absolutely than it should be. And I feel like I don't care who you are, like you are probably experiencing uh, these days some kind of setback or loss or challenge or difficulty that I think all of us, because we are breathing this air, are a hard thing is becoming an anxiety inducing thing Mm -hmm. that feels like a reflection or a statement of our dignity, value and worth.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that makes a
1: lot of sense. That is that is correct. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. So problems with the modern identity, it's fragile, it's crushing. And then the last one, um, it's an illusion. The idea that you are deciding what's right and wrong by looking into your own heart, you're telling yourself that that's what you're doing, but that's not really what you're doing. Tim Keller used this great example. Okay. 200 years ago, if you're a woman and you love a man, but you want to take this job and you can't do both, your culture would say to you, you better take the man, forget about the job. That doesn't Mm -hmm. matter right now, if you're a woman and you are in love with a man and you want to take this job, but you can't do both, you got to move to a different city or whatever. What is the, what does the culture? say? the culture says you better not choose the man. You better take that job, right? Mm -hmm. In both cases, what are you doing? You're doing what the culture tells you to do. It's not coming from inside you at all. Every single culture has a moral grid outside of ourselves that it imposes upon us without asking permission and it shapes us to behave in certain ways. And so at the end of the day the, this is this is a lie <laughs> the idea that uh, I'm just doing what I'm doing because it makes me feel good about myself. Mm. That's not the way that any of us is actually living at the end of the day. Like,
1: So yeah similar I mean a good example of that right was just just the idea that you know one form of identity that every is a frequent topic of conversation, is gender identity, right? And 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 mm-hmm. it's been sparked by this idea that, you know, gender is merely a social construct. Well, so is the idea that gender is merely a social construct, right? Like, we're, yes. we're depending on social constructs to say something else is a social construct. And so, like, <laughs> Ironically, why does it feel like we're using postmodernism to critique postmodernism? Um, but it's it's kind of a black hole of, of never-ending uh, deconstruction because there's always another layer and you can't actually hit a point where, okay, now we can rebuild on this foundation.
0: Yep. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Keller has this great example where he talks about Laman Sane, who was, um, I think he's from Gambia. Um, he, uh, and actually Ashley and I met him and he was like the nicest man I've ever met. He passed away like a year and a half ago, but he was, a um, African, um, became a Christian and taught at uh, Yale. He was a theologian taught at Yale for a long time. And he has this um, place in one of his books where uh, Laman Sane talks about the thing that makes Africans African is their belief in spirits. And he says, if you go to Yale, they're going to talk about diversity and they're going to say, come and wear your African dress and bring your African culture, but spirits are not real right now. Laman Sane said that when he became a Christian, he didn't become a, an aspiring European, that Christianity actually allowed him mm-hmm. to become a renewed African and that the Bible read through African lenses made a ton of sense of the African view of the world because the Bible is saying, yeah, there's angels, there's some that are fallen. So these spiritual realities are actually true. So African, uh, I mean, there's a great book by um, Thomas Oden called um, How Africa Shaped the Christian Mind. But basically what Laman Sane is talking about is, is is this very reality? If we if we think that we're just doing what we're doing um, because we've looked inside ourselves and um, and discovered what's true for ourselves, it's actually not the reality. If you go into progressive, you know, secular environments, the, there's this idea that you know diversity is great, um, but it's diversity as we have termed it, right? Mm. It's not a place that allows. Somebody like Laman Sane to come and say, actually, Christianity has allowed me to be the best possible version of African that I can be.
1: Well, right. Yeah, it would be a a diversity of self-expression, but not a diversity of objective truth claims. Right. It would be a a, a, the the thought uh, like this is this is what's interesting to me about this, too, is it actually does still require a common set of assumptions in order to for there not to be significant cultural conflict and this maybe this just goes back to the beginning i don't know if you're trying to get it here or not but like yeah. this is like <laughs> that's why we are in a post christian culture that is yeah. a reaction to second culture so third culture that's a reaction to second culture monotheistic culture and if you if that requires a certain um, premise and assumption that is defined by what it's more by what it's like against. Is that a fair summary? Exactly.
0: exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, this is why like Philip Reeve talked about third cultures as, as anti-cultures because, um, and I mean, you and I could talk about this all day long, but it's not actually putting forward a positive identity. It's, or, or it, it's, it's simply derivative of mm. it's deconstructive of that kind of second world, um, view of the world. Wow. Yeah. 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 And so this is why, I mean, people started pointing out that, um, uh, I mean, this is what Ross Duthit's book is about, about decadence that we're not actually producing positive cultural artifacts. And he says that like every movie is either a remake or just the same Marvel movie again. And I know you're probably going to get upset with me for saying that, but I just don't care. We're not, we can't produce good art because everything is just, is just deconstructive.
1: Okay, I, I will agree with you on that, but I'm going to withhold my agreement on the exception that is the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Either way, the the this is a really helpful way of, it doesn't necessarily prescribe like, okay, what do we do with this? But it absolutely describes so many of where the fault lines are in the broader conversations about how do we function as a society? How does the, and, and mm-hmm. to your point earlier about how much, this is now within the church uh in ways that honestly is that's relatively recently. That's not even been a decade. Yeah. Right. Because how much yeah. how many of the appeals, let's just use this as an example, how many of the appeals in the wake of the uh this this last election uh were based on you know expressing themselves as like we owe a recount or, you know, question this election to the however million people, you know, and they sincerely believe that this election was stolen. Well, is not mm. actually about what they sincerely believe it's about objective fact right but what mm-hmm. the, the sincerity piece is actually seems really rooted in what you're talking about with the psychologizing of the self in mm-hmm. that it is it is the strength of our belief um about of something that is where we are getting our identity and where we are determining truth therefore right so mm-hmm. And, and it's so interesting because I, I feel like if we can't, we have to be able to articulate and question the premise of the question that uh, uh around how we are talking about identity and ask, okay, wait, when you say identity in like deconstruction or whatever else, are we talking about the the finite human effort that is um, our ability to try and like understand what truth is and objective reality and, and then shape our beliefs around what is true or are we saying that sincerity and self-definition is 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 the goal and not a self-submission to a greater reality because if you can't have that conversation and make that jump yeah then we are not we're not actually having the conversation with the same guardrails never mind going to the same destination
0: yeah yeah, yeah. And that's why really, and this is where we're going to land it for today. That's why uh, the the Christian identity, the gospel identity isn't the traditional identity, and mm-hmm. it's not the modern identity. And we have to say that because I think that most people coming from the modern individualistic identity hear Christians talk and think, "Oh, you're just talking about going back and doing the things that the church tells me to do so that I can live up to their expectations and be a good person." And that's that's not what we're actually talking about. We're going to we're going to talk um, more about this in the next episode. I, I did just want to say, like, okay, the Psalms are great proof of this. Mm. Um, because if you look at the Psalms, uh, so you take like Psalm 42 and 43, why are you so downcast, oh, my soul? Put your trust in God, mm. right? And, and what is the Psalmist doing? It, he's looking and he's saying that your ultimate hope, is going to be found in putting his trust in God, which sounds like the modern identity, right? But he's also saying soul, he's, he's, he's talking to himself. Why are you so cast down on my soul? So he's looking inside himself at the same time, which sounds like the modern identity. But he's sort of like singing himself into a gospel identity. So it's not modern, it's not traditional, it's something totally different. We're going to talk more about that. Here's the the one thing I want to say before we end this. This is where I think we're seeing a huge problem in the church right now. And for for a long time, I think Christianity has functioned in sort of this traditional identity sort of way. And recently... As Western culture has completely shifted into the modern individualistic identity, the church has gone right along with it. And so you you see examples of this taking place with, you know, prominent Christian uh, social media influencers declaring on Instagram that they are leaving the church because um, they... You know they've looked inside themselves, and these things seem, you know, uh, problematic, and so they're going to follow their heart. Or, I mean, I've had examples of this where 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 somebody has said to me in, in in my church has said, you know, I know I married this person, and I know that I promised to be faithful to them forever, but I've met this other person, and I I've fallen in love, and I I have to follow my heart right okay so the the problem is that we have within the church now people with christian beliefs in their head but have a foundation of individualistic identity and so much of what we have seen so i'm not saying that they're not christians like i'm not saying they don't love jesus i'm not saying that but the the christian beliefs Have only affected the mental categories, the 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 doctrine, the beliefs, and their actual functional identity is being lived out of this individualistic identity, where um, where where I'm looking inside myself, and that has been completely. I think, especially in this last year, we've seen how much that is eroding from underneath. And you cannot hold on to the beliefs when the identity has been wiped out from underneath. So, what is the gospel identity? and how do we actually form a gospel identity that is based not on what we achieve, like in the both modern and traditional identities, but it's based on what we actually receive. That's what we're going to talk about next week. I hope you'll join us for that. Please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast if you haven't already. I'm Bryce Hales with Brad Edwards. Our theme music was recorded by Kevin McLeod and used under a Creative Commons license from filmmusic.io. And our logo was designed by Danny Rankin, We'll be back next week with the rest of this conversation looking at gospel identity as we help you navigate life in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world right here on Everything Just Changed.